Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're chatting with Ted Allen, who's the founding host of Chop, which premiered in 2009. The formula is television gold. Star-studded judges, near-impossible time constraints, and bizarre ingredient combinations. Actually, the funny thing is that if we do give someone an easy basket with a skirt steak and a potato and some French butter, that's when they mess up. I I don't know what, what it is. Chefs apparently need to be challenged with Doritos and Diet Pepsi in order to produce well on our show. Also coming up, we share our recipe for German apple cake. And later, Adam Gopnik discusses the role of turkey in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But first, it's my interview with Micah Peters, who splits her time between Berlin and Malta. Her new book is 365, A Year of Everyday Cooking and Baking. Micah, welcome to Milk Street. Hello, and thank you for having me on your show. Let's talk about you. Uh, A German background, although you spend a lot of time in Malta and Berlin these days. 
So you, you talk in your book about German comfort foods being sort of one of the culinary themes in your life. So what are German comfort foods? German comfort food is very much the food that, that I learned to love from my mother and my grandmother. It's very frugal cooking. It's cooking with not many ingredients. There are a lot of carbs. Obviously, it's German food. It's oh, There's often meat involved. But um, what I love about it is that it's it's a kind of food that you can easily cook during the week when even when you when you had a busy day, and uh, it's just food that makes you feel very very good. Um, so let, let's go through some of the the recipes in your book: uh, coriander cumin meatloaf with dates and orange. Now that's taking a classic. And really messing with it, right? <laughs> in a major way. <laughs> I mean, you're definitely messing I mean, with it. My mother rolled her eyes when when I told her about it because the recipe is actually based on her minced loaf, which I grew up with. I I love her minced loaf. This is I love it warm, fresh. I love it cold. But yeah, I moved away from her more classic approach and just felt a bit more playful. And then definitely Malta came in and this that I feel like, hey, I just add some dates. I add more spices. Um, but I always try to find a balance. As much as I love to be brave with it, I always try not to go overboard with the amount of ingredients that I add. Because otherwise, if you if you use every ingredient in right. a very bold way, it's just it's just Too a mess. <laughs> Spaghetti with ricotta, orange, and crispy sage, uh, another mashup. Yeah, this is ricotta is very, very popular in Malta. You find ricotta in everything. You have it in pies, you have it in um, pasta. And I started playing around, and I love the combination of orange zest and fried sage. I think that's really, really nice. And then just spaghetti and ricotta. And that's a super quick dinner during the week. If you're lucky, you just have the ingredients at home. Okay, so let me give you some basic ingredients people have around. So if I said, okay, long grade rice or basmati rice, how would you start thinking about doing something to that on a weekday that is a little more interesting? That is so mean because you chose the only ingredient that I'm really not too fond of, and that's rice. <laughs> well, then, that, that, then you have to dress it up and add stuff to it, right? Exactly. I think rice is... Lots of people will hate me for this, but I think rice tastes quite plain and I think it just becomes, it needs fat. It either needs oil or butter. And then I would either add a lot of herbs. You can just chop up your leftover herbs or you just get playful with spices. Uh, they're just spices that already give you this warming feeling like cumin, cinnamon, um, coriander, cardamom, just mix them together. Rice can really take quite a bit of other flavors. Uh, chicken. If you have boneless, skinless chicken breasts, which is pretty tasteless, uh, thoughts about that? What you would do with it? So what I like to do is when I, when I have, when I feel like cooking chicken, I just see what's in the pantry. Do I have, I have a lot of different beans and I would just throw some canned beans on the, on a large baking tree and see what do I have in the vegetable drawer um, I think I would be, get a bit playful, maybe some tomatoes, maybe even zucchini. Um, and then I would add lemon zest. Orange zest would work as well, but to add something that is that has a bit of a punch. What I also like with chicken is fruit. I add apricots to one um, chicken recipe. Um, grapes are also great, whatever fruit you have at home. So if I'm going to create an overarching theme to your cooking, you you mix sweet and savory. Yeah, because fruits are not just sweet. They're also sour. Right. And um, the sourness actually works very, very well with um, with meat or with other vegetables. Yeah, like I said, I mean, beans, for example. Beans and bacon, is, that's something we've had a million times. And then it's just nice to say, okay, let's cut some pear or apple wedges and sear them on really high temperature. I, I love to cook vegetables very, very briefly on very, very high temperature because it just con the flavor becomes a bit more concentrated then. And to add that to, to, to green beans, for example, it just brings in something new, some, something that is a bit more exciting than what we're used to. And I also find that the acidity of it um, makes it a bit lighter and more refreshing. If you and I were having a glass of wine at a bar or something and we had just a few minutes, 
are, are there a couple of things you would tell me that you've learned in your 10,000 hours that have really been transformative to you? I think I think the most important thing is to um, to experience the pure flavor of ingredients of a, of a good zucchini and then or a good eggplant, a good tomato, nice potato, and to really take the time to focus on this flavor. And then that's why I say recipes, cookbooks, it's all fine. But what is far more exciting was what is what happens inside us. And then I would just tell you, see, think of the zucchini and just wait. Something will come to your mind. You will think of something. It might be sage. It might be thyme. It might be a spice. And it's... I find this process so exciting and when other people tell me about that, when, when they start to add other ingredients to my recipes. And um, yeah, this is something that I, I, I'd love to inspire people to, to do that more, to, to use cookbooks or the internet, whatever, as a guideline or an inspiration. You started your food blog, In My Kitchen, in 2013, and now you're doing Meat in Your Kitchen, uh, where you visit people in their kitchens. Um, give me one or two examples of, of going to someone's kitchen and learning something that was really surprising to you. I think it's always very satisfying because it's very intimate. When you go to someone's kitchen, you really, you learn a lot about the person and you see a lot about this person's home because the kitchen is a space where we don't, we don't represent, we don't try to be something that we're, we're not. And, um, I love going to the kitchens of home cooks, actually, or, or in Malta, I went through a few, to a few mamas and grannies who've been cooking all their life and who learned the, the recipes that they cook from the, the generations before them. And it's not, these are not fancy places. The, the, these cooks don't cook with expensive ingredients and there are still people who cook every day. And um, I love going to, yeah, to these kitchens of the, I call them the mamas, because you really, you learn a lot about the culture of a, of a country, for example. That's how I learned the most about Malta, through these kitchens. And it's a very, very honest place. Micah, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It was really a lot of fun. That was Micah Peters. Her new book is called 365, A Year of Everyday Cooking and Baking. Right now, my co-host Sarah Molt and I will answer a few of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So, Chris, before we take the calls, I have a burning question for you about the upcoming holidays. Is there a really quick and easy hors d'oeuvre that you must have or that you throw together? I don't believe in hors d'oeuvres. <gasps> Philosophically, I want people, when they get to the table, so starving and hopefully a little tipsy that they just... Well, you can't serve them alcohol without food. Absolutely. Oh, that is oh, terrible. Absolutely. Now, I know the French believe in little nibbles and that's aperitifs, yeah. but no, I, I you know, get an old-fashioned and no food. And then when you get to the table, you really enjoy it. Look, if you give people a plate of stuff, right? Yeah. They're going to eat too much, and they're just not going to appreciate their meal. Now, hmm. the one thing, though, I do believe in is trifle for dessert for the holidays, like for Christmas. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, trifle is my go-to big thing. Serves twelve people. I use chiffon cake as the cake. Uh, great pastry cream is just absolutely terrific. Sometimes I put cocoa in it as well. Oh. Uh, no fruit, please. Mm, no, I, I don't like Gross. fruit and trifle. No, and also the next day it looks terrible. Yeah, uh, but trifle and no hors d'oeuvres. That's okay. my secret to go. holiday success. All right, now on to the first call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lisa Kamaraski. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from Huntington, West Michigan. Okay, and how can we help you? Well, I am having family over for Christmas a little bit before Christmas. We usually do it on Christmas Eve, but we moved to a larger home this year, and because we can fit more people, we're having it earlier to try to have more people over. So I always do pasta, and I don't want to change the tradition, but I'm a little bit nervous about doing pasta for 20 people. And so I had some questions about the best, most efficient ways to do this physically. What kind of pasta? Is this like a lasagna? These are noodles? What is it? It's actually a white bolognese sauce 
recipe with, uh, I do rigatoni. I was going to pre-cook the noodles and the sauce the day before, take them out a little bit extra al dente, and then heating up the sauce. I wasn't sure if that would be better to do in the oven or a crock pot. My first thought is you should, under, as you said, undercook the pasta by two or three minutes. And then mm-hmm. when you are ready to serve or getting ready to serve, I would heat the sauce up with the pasta. And so the pasta starts, you know, I was actually just in Bologna. So they undercook their pasta. They ladle some sauce in a skillet with a the pasta. They flip it. They mix it together. And the sauce is absorbed into the pasta. What kind of serving dish do you have, like a chafing dish, a slow cooker? What do yeah. you use? I have a few chafing dishes, actually. Yeah, I would use those because they're fairly low heat. You could heat up the sauce separately, and once it gets hot, then oh. you could add it to the pasta, the undercooked pasta. And that way, okay. slowly in a chafing dish over time, it's going to come up. As, as long as the pasta gets fully cooked by the time you serve it, but but keep it at a low temperature. I think it would be okay, right, Sarah? I'm sort of agreeing, but I also have another idea. What if you made sure the sauce was somewhat thick and layered it with no-boil lasagna noodles? I'm not a big fan of lasagna, or I'm kind of over it lately. I'll go back to it someday. I <laughs> Good just, for you. Ugh, it doesn't do it for me lately. The problem with any solution is once the pasta is properly cooked, whether it's no-boil noodles or undercooked regular rigatoni, when it is cooked, it's ready to eat. So I, I would do it in two or three batches, have the pasta ready to go, refresh it you know, in water, and then mix it with a sauce. Refresh it in water? Well, no, if you're not letting the yeah. pasta sit in water for an hour. No, you can't, but so, you're going to lose all the starch. I thought it would save the starch water from the day before because this pasta generally does take, if you need some starch water too to finish it. See? We're going to have um, two teams. I, We're going to have the rigatoni team and the lasagna team. No, no, I lost. You know, I lost. <laughs> listen, you, you always listen to the person at the other end of the line. If she doesn't want lasagna, she doesn't want lasagna. I think we've got a great plan. Thank you so much. Okay, okay thanks care. for calling. Okay, bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Anne from Indianapolis. How are you? Fine. A little cold today. Uh, it is that time of year, yes. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to this. Well, I'm half looking forward to it, at least the part where I'm inside cooking I am. So how can we exactly. help you? Right. I have acquired a winter melon, and I'm a little unsure as to exactly what to do with it. When you say acquired, this was a stranger dropped it at your door? You were willed it? <laughs> Almost. Um, my parents have a Chinese acquaintance, and they have swapped homegrown produce over the years. And normally it's been tomatoes for long beans. Right. But this time, there was a winter melon thrown in. And there's a bit of a language barrier, so they couldn't ask her exactly what to do with it. I know what it is. It's not sweet. It's savory. It can be pickled. I don't think it has a very strong flavor, but it's not sweet, right? No. Have you ever cooked with it? No, but I, I've had it in restaurants. Hmm. It's pretty bland, actually. It yeah. picks up whatever you cook it with. How big is it? It's about the size of a small watermelon. <laughs> it's large, but I gather the center is filled with a lot of seeds and everything, so there's not a huge amount of meat to it. You know what I would do? I would cut the top off, gut the inside, paint it, put a face on it like a jack-o'-lantern, put a candle <laughs> in it, light it, and put it on your front porch. No, 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 no. That, that, well, come on. I mean, that would be cool. A winter melon jack-o'-lantern. Make the top into a Santa hat. And... <laughs> there, okay, perfect. Oh, I, I don't think this is going to be an easy one. but Well, no, I think you'd peel it, you get the seeds out, and you just work with the flesh. And essentially, you cook it like you would other vegetables. You braise it or you steam it, and then you add, you know, flavorful ingredients to it. So it will absorb them is the idea. It would be good in something like a stir-fry then. Yes. And put a ton of flavor in the wok while you're at it. It's like tofu, I guess, right? Well, it's a vegetable. It's, I mean... No, but I mean, it's bland. It's bland. So you want nice, saucy stuff on it. So take a tofu recipe with a great sauce and use winter melt. Good idea. That was kind of my impression of it. I was going to say it was the tofu of the vegetable world. Exactly. Or like that black bean garlic fermented paste. That would probably be yummy with it. 
Oh, that would be good. Yeah, not that I've ever cooked it either, by the way. I'm just imagining <laughs> from dishes I've had in uh, Asian I'm, restaurants. I'm, I'm still all in with a Christmas jack-o'-lantern. Okay, or a curry. Maybe a curry would be nice. Well, that has strong flavors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The one thing I do know is you only use the flesh, you know, not the seeds or the skin. And um, it's bland, so just dress it up. <laughs> All right, Anne, I hope you have some success with that. you got to let us know because... Yeah, clearly we're clueless here. We're, we're not very helpful. We're just guessing. <laughs> sure. Okay. So. All right. All right, take thank care. You. Thanks for calling. Okay, thank you for taking my call. Yeah. Sure. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mostly Radio. Sarah and I are here to answer your questions. Just give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Gail. I'm calling you from New York City. And how can we help you? I have a question about making challah. Years ago, I used to buy challah from the bakery, and I don't know if I can explain this that well, but when you would like pull on a chunk, it would come out in strands. Right. So I've been making challah, and I have, you know, it tastes wonderful, but the texture is more cake-like. It's, you know, it's, right. a, it's a fine crumb. And I've tried lots of different recipes, and I can never get that texture, you know, that has these strands. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's funny. You know, every once in a while someone calls and says something, and I go, I haven't thought about that in a long time. But you're absolutely right. Great Hala has that long strands that sort of pull apart. It's not cake-like at all. Right. I think that it's about how you knead the dough and how you layer the dough to shape it. Serious Eats, I think, has a wonderful exposition about making challah. It has to do with just the right proportion of ingredients, the hydration level of dough, that is the percentage of water, uh, how you knead it, how long you knead it, how you shape it. So I think if you treat it like a basic sandwich bread, you're going to get a cake-like. Do you think uh, it might have something to do with the protein in the flour too, maybe a higher protein flour? I think it's how you shape the dough is also really important. And I would also, I don't know what the hydration level is in challah. I would assume it's fairly high, but you have to get exactly the right amount of water for this. Like focaccia, for example, has a very particular texture, but it's about 80% you know, water hydration. Um, so I would also think that's important. But I think it's in the detail, which is a good way of me not answering the question. Right. The specificity. <laughs> so maybe you go look at that recipe, Serious Eats. I use, you know, just an all-purpose flour. Do you think if I used a bread flour? Yes, that would help. Yeah. Absolutely. Bread flour. Okay. Yeah. Another question. This recipe I've been using just uh, uses egg yolk. What do you think about using the whole egg? No, of, I think it's made with egg yolks. Is my just the yolks. Yeah, I think yeah it's that's just the what yolks. the recipe I use has. Hmm. All right, I will give that a try. And okay. let us know how it goes. Okay. But, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. Hala should have that stretchy, pulley texture. Right. I'm glad to to find somebody else who, who concurs with Well, it's me. like thanks. Emily Dickinson. There are two of us, you know. <laughs> now, now we'll work on three. Gail, thanks so much for calling. Yeah. Good luck Thank with that. You. Yes. Okay. Yes. okay. Bye-bye. 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 Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Owen from Cleveland. Hi, Owen. How can we help you? Yes. Yeah, so I have been trying to find a recipe to bake a Christmas German bread called Stolen Bread. And I have a lovely cookbook that talks about how to make different kinds of stolen, but the author specifically states that she has tried to find one to make the very traditional Weinach stolen, uh, but was unable to find a recipe uh, to actually make it consistently. And so I've been trying to find something that will actually allow me to make it at home as opposed to buying it like at an import store. I've read that the amount of butter inside the stolen is actually what keeps it from rising properly. And so I'm wondering if you guys would have any recommendations on what I could do to uh, make it successfully at home. What's the recipe you've tried? Just give us the basic concept. So the basic concept is um, you add some sort of candied fruits, some yeast, about 500 grams of butter, and you sort of mix all that up and you let it rest sort of on the counter or somewhere cool, but not in the fridge. And then you bake it. And after you bake it, you let it rest for two weeks after it's baked. And that's sort of the prime time to cut into it after all the flavors and things have had a chance to sort of... uh, 
you know, congeal and mix up, and then that's how you serve it. Only has one rise. Yeah, it only has one rise. It only has one rise. Correct. Oh. So it rises, and you said in a cool environment, cool room temperature. Yeah. So the recipe says not to leave it like in a hot kitchen, but rather like in a pantry or someplace that's sort of just below room temperature. And these ingredients are in a bowl. Does the volume double? The volume is supposed to double before you actually form it and put it in the oven. But I would think, having made yeastos a lot, an hour at cool temperature it's in the 60s isn't going to do it. This is a dense yeah. batter, isn't it? Especially with all that butter in there, too. Get over a pound of butter. Right. Yeah, I think it, it needs a longer rise. Is yours actually doubling rise. or not? I don't think it is. No, it isn't. I mean, it, not even close. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem. I mean, the problem is the yeast doesn't have enough time and temperature to do its work. So I would, uh, I've had this problem in my kitchen. Sometimes it's 60 degrees or something, and I have to like put the bowl near the fireplace. I would think 75 degrees, 72 degrees would be the right temperature. And it may take a couple hours to get it to rise or even more. Another trick is you could put the dough in the fridge once it's mixed and let it sit two or three days and then take it out and let it rise. And that might give it more time to form some structure. But you're just not letting the yeast get enough work going to create structure. And that's why it's dense. The other thing is you got a lot of butter in there. You might try a little less butter, but it sounds like you just don't have enough rising time and enough temperature. Yeah, I agree about that. Would the fat content of the butter matter? Should I try something that's lower in fat? I don't think it's going to make a huge... I mean, you're talking about 81% versus 83% or something. I don't think that's going to make a difference. I think the yeast is not active enough. Yeah. Okay, great. All righty. And Owen, let us know how it goes. Absolutely, we'll do. Or, okay. Or send us one. <laughs> oh, send us one. <laughs> a good yeah. stone. Send us one. Yeah. We'd like to see it. We'd love to see it. Really see it. <laughs> Take <laughs> okay, care. Thanks, Owen. <laughs> thanks for calling. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Food Network star Ted Allen. That's coming up in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but 
pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most State Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Ted Allen is the founding host of Chopped. Every episode, four chefs go head-to-head trying to create a dish with an unusual basket of ingredients. Ted Allen, welcome to Milk Street. It's great to be on Milk Street. You had a long career on Queer Eye and now over 10 years on Chopped. So what do those two shows have in common, uh, besides you, of course? What they have in common is that I think part of my job in both of those shows is to try to explain cooking to people in a way that such that almost anyone could understand what I'm talking about. I'm something of an interpreter, certainly on Chopped, between professional chefs and home cooks who might have no idea what a blumange is or what a, a mother sauce is. Or maybe somebody will say a word like gastrique right. on Chopped, and I might say, oh, you mean, you mean basically a sweet and sour sauce. The original Queer Eye, first of all, obviously it was sort of a moment in our culture, but I, I love the fact that it's become so much part of our culture that it's been parodied. Uh, the Comedy Central did Straight Plan for the Gay Man, which I really liked. <laughs> How to put neon beer mm-hmm. signs in your living room. And then South Park spoofed it with uh, a version where the Fab Five are actually evil crab people trying to take over the world. Indeed. So when that happens, you know you've actually made it, right? A show's really made it in the culture when South Park does it. Yes, I was. Needless to say, we were very excited. Now the show that show kind of devolved into something pretty, pretty silly and weird by the end. But and I don't think I had any lines. But I don't care. I have a actually have a picture that uh, that the South Park guys sent us and signed that shows their characters playing us, uh, and I treasure it. I cherish it. Well, it's, I'm waiting for my South Park moment, but I may have to wait a long time. Um, talk to me about. Chop. First of all, I want a T-shirt with a line, time's up, please step back, because <laughs> have you ever used that in a personal relationship where you're having a fight with somebody and you go, time's up, please stand back, <laughs> I think. Uh, the, the, uh, you, you don't know my husband very well. Very well. Um, that would not fly. <laughs> somebody once sent me a coffee mug that's a chopped coffee mug that says time starts now on the back. I actually have a whole Rubbermaid bin, the big, the big fat kind. Right stuffed with TV mementos and swag and, a, you know, like a, a beach towel from The Tonight Show. And you're, you said you wanted to talk about my career, which I often refer to as the hoax that passes for my career. But um, I'm very grateful to be where I am. I have a lot of fun at work. And if you can enjoy your work, you're a lucky person. What makes Chopped work? Is it the competition in terms of the timing of getting the dishes done? Is it the personal stories? Is it the competition between the chefs? What what really drives that show? What is it about the show you know that I don't know? 
Uh, I think there are a few things. One is that, as you may know, I'm sure you might agree with me, chefs, and I mean this in the best way, are control freaks. They select their lamb only from their favorite lamb provider. They know exactly who provides the herbs they like the best. They pick their plates. They set the lighting. And chopped takes away all of your control. We force you to cook with four ingredients that quite likely don't go together particularly well or in an obvious way. And actually, the funny thing is that if we do give someone an easy basket with a skirt steak and a potato and some French butter, and that's when they mess up. I don't know what what it is. Chefs apparently need to be challenged with Doritos and Diet Pepsi in order to (laughs) produce well (laughs) on our show. And pig pickled pig lips, yes, indeed. But you know, some cultures that's 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 a regular thing. Now you've been quoted as saying that every basket has a riddle in it, and I know uh, the judges when they judge the dish will judge it in part by how well the person figured out the riddle. What, What is the riddle? The woman that runs the committee that makes the baskets, um, Sarah Hormy, she always has an idea. Every basket has an idea in it. So if, let's say we give you lavash bread and a, and a really soft tofu and um, a, a tomatillo. Perhaps what we have in mind is that we want you to do some kind of a take on pizza. Right. Um, every basket is somewhat difficult. And, and we spend much of our time at the judge's table talking about what we would do what we think the basket gods are looking for, but it's a pretty rare thing for someone to nail it exactly on the head. As long as you cook something that is delicious and balanced in terms of texture and acidity and soft and crunchy and well-cooked protein, uh, then your chances are pretty good. Oh, by the way, you also have to do that in 20 minutes. (laughs) that, That part really threw me. I mean, 20, you know, I'm a good cook, you're a good cook. But 20 minutes, that, that's impressive. Do you think that the people who take more time at the front end to think about what they're going to do end up doing better versus people who sort of jump into it? Yes. I, I think that taking a moment to think about what you can accomplish with a tub of mascarpone cheese in this amount of time, you know, we, we will give people a whole turkey, 20-pound turkey. You can't cook that in 30 minutes. It's 20 minutes for the first round and 30 for the second and third round. You obviously have to make a decision. Are you going to cut a little medallion off the breast? Are you going to, I don't know, strip the dark meat off the uh, the legs and do something with saute that somehow and then deep fry the skin to make a chip? I think a little planning is super smart. Mm. And I, that's one thing that impresses me when I, it's rare that you see someone do that. Usually they sprint into the pantry to get their ingredients. What is it about the judges in terms of whom you select? Uh, does Martha Stewart, for example, bring something particular to the judging panel? What, what, what makes a good judge? Uh, I love having Martha Stewart on. I've always been an admirer of hers. I, I met her and interviewed her years ago when I was an editor at Chicago Magazine. And... Uh, we went and bought pierogi. She was doing an appearance at what was then Marshall Fields. Mm-hmm. She was doing some kind of bridal event, and I thought I would bring her pierogies. And you know, this is almost tw- probably close to twenty years ago. She signed my Martha Stewart cookbook with, in her, and she has this very floral, elegant, girly script. And she wrote something like, "Ted, it was very nice to see you. Keep trying on the pierogi, Martha Stewart." <laughs> <laughs> and so I, perfect. And I, right? And I showed that to her on set in this recent era when she's been working with us. And she said, oh, yeah, I would write that. Yeah. <laughs> so she's got this obvious incredible level of taste, incredible level of knowledge of all kinds of cooking from all over the world uh, and a very refined sensibility. She also has a fantastic sense of humor. She loves it when you poke a little fun at her and her mystique. You have to, you know, like anybody, you've got to know the, the line because she's ferocious. Uh, and she might smack you with a herring, but... Um, She's very funny. Um, Our judges are almost all people who have multiple restaurants and who have really grown into this gig over the years. And and they're all very close friends of mine. I love them to death. What what has happened? Food Network started out a little rough, uh, gained some momentum, really became hugely successful with some of its stars. It's moved into other kind of programming. 
Where does it go from here? Do you think the, the game show formula is so powerful that it remains? Do you think Food Network goes back into more cooking now, away from more entertainment? I've seen critics say that the stand and cook, that that model, that ancient Julia Child model, it someday might just, you know, go away. I, I just wondered if you agreed with that. Uh, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think that it, it is true that we're more demanding of our media today, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to enjoy watching Chris Kimball make an omelet. And I've seen a lot of people make omelets. I think the cast of any show is the most important thing about right. the show. That's true. Um, the people who plan for the future of the network, I'm sure, I, I will tell you, I do know that the Food Network does exhaustive, extensive research um, into what, into how people like me are perceived by the, the audience or by a focus group. But running, running a television business is something I should not be allowed to do. <laughs> and I haven't been. <laughs> what, what have you learned about cooking? I mean, I, I think I, I enjoyed watching the show because actually I kind of learned some things or got some ideas. Have you picked up anything over the years you've actually used in your own cooking from the show? All the time. And in fact, I mean, it's, it, it, I absorb it and then I can't, and I don't even recall that chopped is where I learned it. Um, more than anything, what a day on chopped does for me is it inspires me. You were a food critic at one time, I think it's in Chicago. Is that right? At Chicago magazine. Yes. Yeah. And what, your conclusion after doing that was what about that job? I took that job very, very, very seriously uh, because obviously when you're critiquing a restaurant, uh, you could – some food critics are in a position to put somebody out of business or to at least you know, really hurt someone and this is a person's livelihood. I, I find it a very – I find it a very intellectually stimulating challenge to taste dishes and decide who is doing something true and balanced and wonderful and soulful – um, um, and who's not quite meeting the mark. And it's, it's, it never gets dull for me, and I don't think it ever will. Ted, thank you so much uh, for being on Mill Street. It was really a pleasure. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Chris. It's always a pleasure to take a stroll down Milk Street. That was Ted Allen, host of Food Network's Chopped. He's an award-winning writer, also a food and wine expert. I never watched Chopped until I was preparing for my interview with Ted, and to my great surprise, I really liked it. You know, Chopped made me think that our definition of entertainment has changed over the years, from Punch and Judy shows to opera to vaudeville to radio, then on to movies and television. I do, however, wonder if a cooking competition is a bit tame compared to entertainment options just a century ago. For example, Ethel Pirtle used to motorcycle around the wall of death with a lion in her sidecar, Frank Richards shot himself in the stomach with a cannonball twice every day. And most famously, Joseph Pujol was capable of expelling vast amounts of gas in order to blow out candles and even produce melodies. Not very sophisticated, you say? Sure, but I bet it was really entertaining. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, German apple cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Apfelkuchen. Let's, we'll just start with that. Uh, it's a German apple <laughs> hey. cake. And let me just describe the style. It's a one-layer cake. It's a fairly tender cake. It's almost like a coffee cake, really, with sliced fruit on top. And we got the recipe or the initial idea for the recipe from a book called Classic German Baking from Louisa Weiss. It's sort of a one-bowl cake. It's easy, but it's delicious. It's a little bit different than what we do here. So a one-layer cake with apples on top. How do we get started? So first I want to tell you that this is sort of a top secret recipe that Louisa found on, of all places, a box of almond paste. Not so secret. <laughs> so she tinkered with it quite a bit. And then when we brought it here to Milk Street, we tinkered with it a little bit more. Typically, almond paste is not in a German apple cake. However, 
apples and nuts is a pretty common combination in Germany. So it added that flavor uh, to this German cake, and that makes it a little bit different than a typical German apple cake. We're talking about not marzipan, which is sweeter. This is almond paste, right. which you can buy in any supermarket. It comes in a tube, right? Yeah, you definitely want to steer clear of marzipan. That's way too sweet here. We just want that like subtle flavor of the almond paste in this recipe. One thing that she did differently here was rather than just mix the almond paste into the batter, almond paste can be a little bit crumbly, so you would end up with pockets of almond. What she does is mix it in while she's creaming the butter and sugar, which kind of allows it to incorporate fully throughout the cake, so you're getting that flavor all over. So the mixing method is cream butter and sugar with the almond paste and then add your dry and liquid ingredients. It's sort of classic American style. It's a pretty simple cake. Those things get creamed together. We add some eggs, then we add the dry ingredients. Very, very simply poured into a springform pan, and then we top it with our apples. So these apples are thinly sliced and sort of nicely layered on top. <laughs> they are. It's a really pretty cake, too. We're using Granny Smith apples. We like the tartness of Granny Smith, plus they hold up really well in the oven. Because they're a little bit heavy on the top of the cake, you want to slice them really thin, and then we fan them out on the top of the cake, almost in like a seven-point star shape, and it looks really, really pretty and has really nice flavor on the top. May I say a word about Granny Smith apples? Certainly. I, th these are the worst apples in the world for eating out of hand. I mean, they're really nasty, but they're great in baking. Best for baking. Yeah, because they actually hold their shape and yeah. they don't turn to applesauce. So German apple cake, Apfelkuchen, courtesy of Louisa Weiss, cookbook author, classic German baking. She tinkered with it. We did too. But the original recipe comes from the back of a tube of almond paste. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for German apple cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik discusses the symbolism of turkeys in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Milk Street Radio, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. This helps other people find the show, also encourages them to listen. And thank you. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moesalmon.us to learn more. 
That's Moi, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, time for this week's culinary tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Jim Boyle, and here's my tip. Usually when I make potatoes for, like, mashed potatoes, I peel the potatoes, and now I've got in the habit that I do save the uh, peels for the next day or day after and either fry them up or fill them with some type of stuffing and, and cook them and reuse them. So don't throw those peels away. Save them. Reuse them. They're just great, and uh, you can even make French fries or potato chips out of them. So... Thank you and good luck and have a great holiday. Thank you. If you'd like to share your culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor, Adam Gopnik. Adam, welcome back to Milk Street. Uh, What's on your mind this week? Well, Chris, uh, you know what's on everyone's mind, I guess, are the joys of the season. And I am thinking about the politics of the turkey. From the beginnings of the modern Christmas in the 19th century, the question of giving away turkeys and eating turkeys has always been central. And one of the things that I think people don't often contemplate is the true political nature of the most famous turkey in literary history. And that is, of course, Christopher? Uh, Well, it's Mr. Scrooge. Exactly. Exactly right. It's the... Christmas turkey that Scrooge, after his epiphanic night, decides to give to the Cratchit family, um, the biggest turkey in the window. Remember, he sends a boy to yes, it. Yes, a the boy. boy. says, what, the one almost big as I am? What's fascinating is if you read what was said and argued about that gift of Scrooge's, the gift of the turkey to the Cratchits, it's one of the most controversial moments in 19th century politics and one that resonates to our own time. Because... Free marketeers, kind of the proto-Ain Randers, some of them very sympathetic people, said Scrooge's gift of that turkey is extremely dangerous in a market society because the question we have to ask is not, are the Cratchits glad to have the turkey? The only question worth asking is, who didn't get the turkey because Scrooge bought it for the Cratchits? Scrooge, in this view, is unnaturally subventing the turkey market by short-circuiting the system and giving one away in this medieval altruistic gesture to the Cratchit family. So many people who were in favor of free market reforms, as we understand them, were very anti-Cratchit family But, but wait, turkey. wait, 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 wait. Scrooge threw the money down to the quote-unquote boy who paid good money, market rate, for that turkey— what Scrooge did with it after it was purchased, is that relevant to a discussion of free market economics? Well, in the Westminster Review, shortly after the publication of A Christmas Carol, it was seen to be, because Scrooge was seen then as a patron. If there's only one Scrooge doing that, perhaps it's okay. But Scrooge was seen very much as the patron of a system that, instead of empowering families to buy their own turkeys, made them dependent on the grace and favor of rich people to get their turkeys. So free marketeers believe that everyone should be involved and no one should be dependent on a benevolent patron or philanthropist to get their turkey. So many of them, and some of them are exactly what we now call liberals, frowned 
uh, on the gift of the turkey to the Cratchit family. As I say, the Westminster Review, which was run by my great hero, John Stuart Mill, gave Dickens a very bad review for A Christmas Carol exactly because Scrooge was distorting the market. On the other hand, the great right-wing thinker, Thomas Carlyle, at first loved A Christmas Carol because he thought it was a revolutionary book, an attack on want, an attack on privilege, an attack on miserliness, and he thought that Dickens was pointing the way towards a new millennium. But then he realized that when Dickens had Scrooge give the turkey to the Cratchits, he really meant it. He thought that just giving turkeys to people was a positive thing, that you didn't have to have some large, radical, uh, reactionary, backward-looking revolution in order to have a better world, that if all of us acted with more and greater compassion in all of the orbits of our private and personal life, the world would improve. And he wrote very angrily about how disappointed he was in Dickens in the long run, because Dickens was one of those foolish people who believed that you could butter up the world just by handing out turkeys. Can I stop you just for a second, though? I just have to say this, because Dickens is my favorite author of all time. I've read that book 20 times. It was about a man near the end of his life coming to realization that he had wasted his life and that he needed to think about people other than himself, which which is not a function of making society better by giving turkeys away, but by acting in a more socially responsible manner. Isn't that a better summation of A Christmas Carol? Well, it it for liberal humanists like thou and I, Christopher, it is. <laughs> We think that people should begin to improve the world by acting with greater compassion yes. and generosity in their immediate social circle. Be kind right. to the people who depend on you or the people who are in your orbit who have less right. than you do. That's what we take away from it, and that's what Dickens meant for us to take away from it. But for a great okay. uh, radical prophet like Carlyle, those little acts of individual compassion, those small efforts at immediate amelioration of our circumstances— seemed like mere reformism when what was needed was revolution. I see. So he hated the turkey because he thought it only uh, encouraged people in the belief that you could make the world a better place by exactly those small acts of compassion and reform that you and I believe are essential to making a better world. That you and I may believe, certainly I believe, are the only mechanism we have to make a better world. Right. The turkey was, as you know, a very big deal when Dickens was writing A Christmas Carol in the early Victorian period. You remember that when the Cratchits are having their actual meal that uh, Scrooge observes on Christmas night, they're not having a turkey. No. They're having a fatty little goose because a goose was the feast food of the London poor. No one could afford a turkey. A turkey was still a very big deal. Now, as I say, the politics have changed significantly. In our world, what worries us are the illnesses of abundance. We worry that our turkeys are farmed inhumanely. We worry that our turkeys are raised to have breasts so enormous that they literally would break their legs if they stood up on them. Uh, We worry about a whole other range of questions about personal responsibility and altruism. Our ethical questions are different, and yet we can't avoid the ethical questions tied up in food. So as we feast for the season, we have to remember that every choice we make for the table is a choice loaded with questions of value. Well, I'd like the simplicity of, of Dickens when he is at his most maudlin and, and romantic, which is simply at the end. Remember, no man kept Christmas in his heart better than Scrooge for the rest of his days. So, so maybe that's yes. all one needs to do is keep Christmas in your heart. And uh, you can check out the turkey, but, but that, that was the point of the story, right? That is the point of the story, but the point of the story is also that we keep Christmas through material benevolence. Keeping Christmas for Dickens didn't just mean keeping it as a religious festival, tighten our hearts. In fact, that's a very secondary part of it. What it means is being aware of other people's impoverishment and trying in our own immediate orbits to limit and ameliorate that impoverishment. No act we make at the table is unfreighted with meaning. No choice we make for our feasts exists in a vacuum of human value. So you can't just cook it and eat it. You have to think about it. You have to think your food. Whether you want to or not, whether you choose to or not, you're going to end (laughs) up thinking your food, so you'd better think about it clearly. Adam, I don't know whether I should listen to you on these holidays or Charles Dickens, but 
I, I suspect. I Always suspect listen I should, to Dickens before Gopnik. <laughs> Dickens I before Gopnik. Doff my hat to uh, to relatively few writers, but every writer should be on his or her knees before the genius of Charles Dickens and the morality of Charles Dickens, which reminded us the thing to do is to go out and buy the damn turkey right. and not worry about a politics. Adam Gopnik, keep Christmas in your heart all the days of the year. You as well, Christopher. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. You know, Dickens had a strong affinity for the poor since his father was briefly sent to debtor's prison as young Charles was apprenticed in a blacking factory. At the heart of Dickens' worldview was a love of humanity, but also a suspicion of the impersonal nature of the industrial age. So when Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning, a changed man, no longer as a secret and solitary oyster, he says, it's Christmas Day, I haven't missed it. Hear the good news. On Christmas morning, open the window, shout for joy, be a good friend, and above all, embrace the promise of Christmas present. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch the new season of our television show, and order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, Recipes That Will Change the Way You Cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Cindy Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubup Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.